Church, good morning. Welcome to worship at Calvary. I'm Pastor David, glad to see you here this morning. Take your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14 this morning, Mark chapter 14. Hope you are coming this morning expecting God to do something in your life. I tell you, our posture when we prepare for worship is so important, making sure that one uh, there's no unconfessed sin in our life. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a, a brief word of prayer as we begin uh, this preaching moment. And I want to encourage you, don't worry about the person beside you, in front of you, behind you, across the aisle. Uh, sometimes I, even myself can be guilty of being, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this this morning. They really need this particular message. And what about the work that God wants to do in my heart, all right? Uh, we're t- we talk about using I statements. Uh, God is speaking to me. He's speaking into my life. I need to work on this. So what about we, we pray that God speak to my heart, change my life, change my heart where I'm at this morning. And as we, we dive into the word, I believe God has so much we're going to look at the, the passion where, passage where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he goes to the cross. Imagine what it must have been like to be in this garden amongst these trees that are thousands of years old, these olive trees, and wrestling with God as, as he knows he's getting ready to go to the cross. Imagine the agony. Imagine some of you have anxiety, and I have anxiety at times. Imagine what was going through Christ's mind as he's preparing to die on an old rugged cross for your sin and mine. And as he asked the Father, Lord, if it, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me, all the while knowing that God's perfect plan included him to be the perfect spotless lamb that would lay down his life on the cross of Calvary and die for your sin and mine. So as we go to the Lord and pray this morning, let's pray that God speaks to hearts just uh, a, a week ago, I had a chance to sit across from a, a couple in our church who have been attending for over a year, and, and both of them prayed and it received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I say that's a win, church. That's an awesome thing. We'll be baptized here in just a couple of Sundays uh, on the 12th of March, and uh, we celebrate uh, new life and how God is transforming lives. And, and maybe you're today, you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Can I say the greatest gift that you can possibly receive this side of heaven is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receive what Christ did on the cross of Calvary and how he rose again and, and, and became uh, our substitute, took our, our sin on, on his body on the cross. And as we pray this morning, I want to pray for God to, to transform lives. And let's pray that I want to pray. Miss Martha uh, Shellman, her mother, Miss Helen, passed away this week. 88 years old, child of God, I'm telling you, uh, she is rejoicing in heaven right now. And uh, I was texting with Martha earlier this week, Thursday, I believe it was, Thursday or Friday, and I said, I just imagine, I said, my mom knew everyone by name that would come in the doors of our church, and I said, I guarantee you she welcomed your mom, she was part of the welcoming committee at, uh, at heaven and welcoming her in. And I said, I can only imagine Paul 
Martha's husband uh, went up and was dancing around heaven with her. Uh, he had a picture from one of the family weddings of them dancing together. And she said, my mom was mortified. There's pictures of her dancing at, at one of her grandkids' weddings. But uh, Paul absolutely loved that. It's like he was, he was right there, you know, to dance with her and have a good time. But we're praying for you. We love you. Uh, Josh, so sorry for your loss. And uh, praying just this week. Uh, is a funeral Thursday or Friday? Friday. Be praying for their family during this time. Uh, one of our uh, ladies is a, a teacher at Jordan High School. They had a, a gun on campus this week. Uh, she asked, Pastor, would you lift up? She says, our, our staff is already frazzled. And she said, uh, thank God they were able to apprehend the, the, the young person and, and the gun. But she said, it just makes for a, a difficult time. Pray for our, our teachers. Pray for our students. Uh, if there's ever a time we need revival... And as much as we've talked about it and seen about the Asbury revival and people, you know what? Don't underestimate what God can do in, in, a, in the craziest of times. The time where we see the most persecution and opposition is when the church of Jesus Christ rises up and when God transforms lives. So let's pray this morning for our teachers, our students, those that are, are facing loss. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit of God to minister to our hearts and transform our lives. Holy Spirit, speak this morning. When maybe be still this morning and hear that still small voice of the Holy Spirit convicting, changing, transforming lives, God. Lord, for those who may be here this morning who've never placed their faith and trust in you for salvation, God, would you radically transform hearts and lives. Start in my life. Lord, would revival begin in my heart. May nothing this morning in my life keep you from working having your way in your church. And, and God, we, we praise you for those who were just recently saved and Lord, those that are going to be taking their next step, Lord, through baptism. God, would you transform hearts and lives. Lord, would you be with those that are, are mourning the loss of loved ones. God, I pray that you would minister grace and peace and comfort as only your Holy Spirit can do. Lord, those who need to place their faith and trust in you for salvation this morning, God, may they understand what you did and what you came to accomplish through your death, burial, and resurrection, and, and may you draw them to yourself in salvation. God, for those teachers and students that are, are facing such uncertain times, God, may we keep our eyes focused on the rock of Christ Jesus. And Lord, may you keep us firmly rooted and growing and grounded in, in, in our faith. God, would you protect, would you uh, bring peace and calm in a time of storm? God, would you radically transform hearts and lives this morning? God, speak to our hearts through this passage in, in Mark 14. God, would you just help us to see the, the agony that Christ faced, and yet he still endured the suffering, the shame, the, 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 the Father turning his back on him, God, also that we might be set free from our bondage of sin. We give you all the praise and honor and glory for what you're going to accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to the passage... Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I have often uh, studied through this passage through the years and, and just thought of the agony of, of Christ, you know, on his, on his face before the Lord, praying, God, if there's any other way that you can accomplish this plan, it allows us to see the human side of the Savior as he came and took on flesh. 
He knew the suffering. He knew the, the pain, the agony. And, and folks, if you think this was an easy experience for Christ, you'd be incorrect. Instead, it was, it's a battle, and I believe it was the world's greatest battle. Many of the, the uh, battles in, in this life, they're decisive battles that change the course of history. In 732, Muslim armies had swept across the Straits of Gibraltar and captured Portugal, Spain, and much of France. The goal was to conquer all of Europe, but the Muslim armies were defeated at the Battle of Tours, led by Charles Martel. Had that battle not been won, we might all be Muslim today. In the War for American Independence, General George Washington trapped British commander Charles Cornwallis at Yorktown, and which ultimately led to the British surrender. Had that battle not been won, we might all be subjects of the Queen's realm today. In Europe, Napoleon's army was sweeping the European continent, but in 1815, at the Battle of Waterloo, Lord Wellington was successful in defeating Napoleon. Had that battle not been successful, we might all be speaking French today. And who could forget D-Day in June 6 of 1944, when thousands of Allied troops invaded Europe and began the march toward Berlin? Had that invasion failed, we might all be speaking German today. In every war, there's a turning point that changes the course of history. And in, in that battle for our hearts and souls, I believe this was the most important battle as Jesus was getting ready to walk that road to Calvary and lay down his life on the cross of Calvary. And I believe the most important battle was fought in Gethsemane. Jesus was yet to be crucified, and I believe that that real battle took place that night in the garden. I invite you to read along with this. Mark chapter 14, begin in verse 32. Appreciate um, Pastor Jackson preaching last week, and uh, what an awesome uh, uh, privilege to see him uh, not only preach the word, but lead our church to communion, and uh, what an awesome thing. Appreciate his faithfulness to the word of God. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32, says, they went to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Do you ever sit down with your kids and you're going to have a time of prayer and you look over and all of a sudden some of them are asleep. Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your husband that's asleep, you know. But you're, you're having that prayer time, you're trying to be serious and at our house it's either laughter or sleeping, you know. I mean, they, someone's laughing about something happens, you know, and you got four teenagers, there's always something crazy going on. They said to them, my soul, or he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Verse 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. They had one job. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch just one hour and watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation? And the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came and the third time said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? And he says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is portrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, 
Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane was rather short, but it was a very steep climb or steep walk. And Jesus' and disciples descended from Mount Zion down to, into the Kidron Valley. The brook Kidron was a narrow stream in the bottom of the valley, but nobody drank from the water. Josephus reported it often ran red because of the remains of the bloody sacrifices up on the Temple Mount often would drain into the brook Kidron. Jesus and his disciples crossed that creek and walked up a few hundred feet to an olive grove and that spread across the lower flank of the Mount of Olives and that's where Jesus fought the battle for our souls. I want us to look at three truths from that night as we look at the Word of God. Jesus prayed at a place where olives were crushed. Jesus prayed at a place that olives were crushed. The Bible says they went to the place called Gethsemane. It comes from two Hebrew words, Gat Shimon, which literally means oil press. There were many olive trees there. In fact, going there just a few years ago, the 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 size, the, the mass of these trees is, is you're looking and you're just imagining. Wonder if it was over here that Jesus knelt. Wonder when he went the second time after calling his disciples out for sleeping. And we went around over, did he, did he gather over by this tree? Or did he go to this place to kneel? And did he agonize over the, the souls of man? But the olives, there was a three-step process in the crushing of olives. First of all, the olives would be dumped into a round stone trough and would be crushed by a man or a donkey advancing a wooden arm attached to a heavy round stone. And this olive mush was then collected and put into round bags and the bags were then stacked one on top of the other and a long tree trunk were, was placed on the bags and it would squeeze out even more oil. The oil was harvested uh, as virgin olive oil. These final, then finally stones were attached to the tree trunk to crush even more oil from the baskets. I think it's no accident that Jesus chose this very place to pray. As he was getting ready to take on the, the weight of the entire world's sin on his body on the cross. And he would experience a soul-crushing struggle. And I believe Jesus fell on his face on the, the rocky soil and he cried out to God in agony. The writer of Hebrews described that night when he wrote this. He said in Hebrews 5, he says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. It was, a, it was a crushing blow. It was, he was agonizing over what the, the pain and the, the suffering that was about to come. In fact, Jesus was under such, uh, such agony that Luke, who was also a medical doctor, uh, tells us this in Luke 22. He says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of what, church? Blood falling down to the ground. Luke used a medical term that's called thrombosis. The little translation is blood mixed with sweat. What Jesus endured, he was in such agony, such pressure, such pain, that his scalp began to ooze bloody sweat. And some of you are going, all right, that's not what I wanted to think about this morning. But the reality is he was agonizing. A medical expert, Dr. David uh, Tarasco, commented, he says, of medical significance... 
is that Luke mentions him as having sweat like blood. He said the medical term for this is hermatidrosis. And he says we've seen it in patients who experienced extreme stress or shock to their systems. The capillaries around the sweat pores become so fragile that they leak blood into the sweat. He said perhaps the most hated king in all of French history was Charles IX in 1592. The Catholic monarch ordered St. Bartholomew's massacre, which over 10,000 French Protestants were killed. The stress from his guilt drove him absolutely insane. In fact, he died at the age of 23 from hematidrosis or hematidrosis. Blood began to seep through his pores, and he died in agony. This condition is rare, but most people, if they experience that, it actually takes their life. And so Jesus was close to death as he battled there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then we see, secondly, Jesus wavered when he looked into the cup of suffering. And hang on, because I want you to see, he didn't didn't sin, but he's saying, Father, if it be your plan... If it would please you to let this cup pass for me, remove it. Verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Abba was the most affectionate term of a Jewish father. Jewish child could use to their father. It meant daddy or, or papa. Jesus said, Dad, Daddy, if you could do anything, I'm asking you, to remove or take this cup from me. And the phrase to drink a, a, drink a cup meant to experience something. And earlier Jesus had asked uh, James and John if they were able to drink the cup that he was going to drink. It was, he was anticipating, there was in the anxiety about what was coming. He wasn't talking about a real cup. He was referring to the experience of suffering and death. He knew what was getting ready to take place. The night before the cross, he peered into this cup and he, he saw what he saw caused his blood to freeze. The contents of this cup caused the Son of God to recoil in horror. See what was so bad about this cup? He saw an emotional isolation. When you read about the life of Jesus, he was such a people person. In fact, everywhere he traveled, people were gathering and he was constantly telling disciples don't tell anyone we're going here because there was such a mob of people surrounding him but he loved he loved being around people he loved sitting and talking and he would tell the children it's okay come to me I want to fellowship I want to encourage I want to build relationships he would talk to fishermen and farmers and tax collectors and sinners and children all these people flocked to him but the closer he gets to the cross the more alone he found himself. In fact, he fed five, over 5,000 men at one point, and plus all the women and children, another 4,000 at a different time. And, but as he began to talk about the demands of discipleship, do you realize the crowds got smaller? But we, were at a, we were at a discipleship conference on Tuesday, uh, Monday of this past week, and uh, the, the guy who's speaking says, They weren't using Jesus as a model for church growth because his crowd was getting smaller. But he says this, as he talked about the demands of of taking up our cross and following Jesus, people begin to scatter because they realize it's painful, it's work, it's going to cost you, you're going to suffer persecution. And the common theme was as they got closer to the cross, 
people were fleeing. The night he was down, this night he was down to only 12 people. One of them would go on in this very same chapter and betray Christ. Right in this very passage. Then he took his three disciples deeper into the garden and he asked them to pray. And they had an all-night prayer meeting except for Jesus was the only one praying. Those closest to him couldn't keep their eyes open. No, I don't know about you, whenever you take a road trip, who's the driver in your house, all right? Who's the driver in your car? Uh, early on, you know, we first got married, and my wife's going to kill me, but, you know, early on, we were like, we're going to share, we're driving to Florida on vacation, and it's two hours on, two hours, anybody else do that? Uh, that worked for like the first trip, you know? And then after that, it's kind of like, you know, I'll, you go ahead and drive your two, and I'll drive, and, you know... Two hours in, I mean, we're like full-blown snoring and, you know, going all, all this stuff going on. And, and there, I know that there's no driving, so I'm like, all right, if we're getting any driving out of anybody else, it's going to be first up, you know, out of the gate, you're driving. But now it's just, I do all the driving. I mean, anybody else like that? I mean, you just, you just take it on. It's, you wear that. Uh, uh. But folks, Jesus realized that everyone else was asleep. Everyone else said, oh, I'll pray with you, Lord. I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I'll agonize with you. I'll... They were sound asleep. Oftentimes, when you're agonizing, you can feel so lonely in that process. But he only did he, was it a, the low, uh, emotional isolation? He saw a physical pain. Jesus was 100% God, and yet he was 100% human as well as a man he experienced physical pain just like we do and he had nerves running through his body as he looked into that cup his humanity shuddered at the thought of the physical pain that was soon coming his way he knew rough hands would grab him and twist his arms behind his back he would be beaten and spit upon it his blood would be plucked from his face and he knew a crown of Thorns were going to be placed upon his head and blood would run down his face. He realized brutal soldiers would mock him and make sport of the torture of Jesus. He foresaw that his back would be beaten, his hands lashed as he was tied to a whipping post. He could, he could already hear the whistle of the cat of nine tails as they whipped through the air over and again, thudding and ripping into his back and... He knew the nails that were the size of railroad spikes would be driven into his hands and his feet and a, a sword would pierce his side. And he saw all of this and he said, please, father, dad, take it away. For years and years as a, as a pastor, I would go and have prayer with people before surgeries and whether it be in, here at church or in their house or in the hospital and Nothing is, I'll be honest, I'm just straight up telling you, I mean, I can pray for you all day long, but when you're getting ready to have surgery, that's a whole different, you know, level of crazy and, and fear. And, and so the first time I, I had a hernia surgery about four or five years ago, and I went into the hospital, and 
I mean, it might as well be quadruple bypass. I mean, brain surgery, you name it. I mean, I was terrified. And, and uh, I remember just, it was the anxiety of the sense of being in that room before you get wheeled off into surgery. And God would have it that my nurse was Miss Wanda Kelly here in our church. And I told her, I said, Wanda, I said, I am terrified of that waiting before going into surgery. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want to remember any of that time. I don't want to think about any of that time. And, and so she said, don't worry, Pastor David. She said, we got the good stuff. She said, I'm going to turn that juice up, and you're not even going to know that you're in the world. And at that time, uh, John Strauss was my assistant pastor, and John came and prayed with me. And, and I remember... Later on, I asked my wife, I said, I guess John got busy and didn't get to come. She said, oh, no, he was here, and he prayed with you, and you talked to him, and all that good stuff. But she gave me the good stuff, and I was off, and I don't remember anything about anything until I was in recovery. And short time later, I had gallbladder surgery, and I remember I was sitting there in that room, and I, I texted Wanda, I was like, what was that stuff you gave me? And I was like, I want to make sure I don't remember. But there was an anxiety that was overcoming me as I was anticipating or waiting on that surgery. The dread was often worse than the experience itself. But folks, imagine the dread Jesus experienced that night. He also saw spiritual shame. As terrifying as the isolation and the physical pain were, none of those came close to the dread Jesus experienced on a spiritual level. Remember, Jesus was God in the flesh. In that cup, he saw the sins of all of humanity. His holy nature recoiled at the thought of drinking in all of that shame and disgrace. That his father would ultimately have to turn his back on him as he hung on the cross. Can you remember a time where your life was far from God? Remember a time where you did not know Christ or you were living for God? The shame, the embarrassment, the reproach that we brought upon our families or our name or the name of Jesus. Imagine Jesus never experienced that. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And yet he would take all of our shame, all of our sin on his body. On the cross, he took on his body all the sins of the entire world. And folks, I know most of you are, are pretty good people, but think about the vilest criminals in all over the world. I just saw a, an article this morning. They opened a, a prison in El Salvador just this past week. They're going to have 32,000 of the hardest criminals and gang members in all of Central America in one prison. Woo! Talk about crazy. The sins of the entire world. Consider the child abusers, the rapists, the, the gang members, the serial murderers. Anybody watch the Alex Murdoch murder trial going on in South Carolina? Here's a, a well-known attorney in the state of South Carolina standing trial for murdering his son and his wife. I mean, I'm talking crazy stuff. Completely insane in that cup was all of the sickening, disgusting shame of every wicked act. The Bible doesn't say Jesus took our, it, it doesn't just say he took our sins. It says he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
It says, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what, church? The righteousness of God. So instead of seeing us in all our sins, all of our trust, all of, our, uh, all of the pain, all the suffering, Jesus went through this, this world for 33 and a half years without a single sin. But Hebrews says he was tempted in way, every way like we are, yet without sin. And yet the prophet Isaiah prophesied God would lay on him the iniquities of us all. So as Jesus saw the emotional, physical, and spiritual suffering, he asked his father to take it away. But we see thirdly, Jesus showed us how to find peace in times of pressure. He sets an example of how you and I should face the struggles, the trials, the, the, the agony uh, and that we face in this life. He says in verse 41, it is enough. The hour has come. He says, he, he, the, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He said, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Just as the olives were crushed three times, Jesus returned three times with the same prayer. He prayed this third time. There, now there was a turning point. Luke adds another detail about this, about an angelic visitor. The Bible says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 43 says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening. Aren't you thankful in our times of great weakness, the times that we struggle the most, God ministers to us and he sent an angel to minister to his own son in the garden and, and strengthen him. You know, we don't know what the angel said or did. We just know that he gave Jesus strength. I'm thankful God knows exactly what we need in our trials. Our times of greatest pressure he is there to minister. And all we know, Jesus returned the third time and he found peace. His head was held high. There was fire in his eyes. And it was as if he was saying, go ahead, devil. <laughs> Hit me with your best shot. All right, come on. I've, I've got this. I'm going to take the sin, the suffering, the pain on my body. And I wonder this morning, what is your personal Gethsemane? What is it that you're facing what is it that's the struggle that you're facing in this life right now? You can find peace in the midst of your greatest moment or storm. Surrender your will to God's plan. Surrender your will to God's perfect plan. When Jesus prayed, remove this cup from me, let me give you a, a 21st century paraphrase, get me out of this mess. You might be asking God to, to change your circumstances, but he's actually more interested in changing you. Sometimes we can, that's why I said earlier, we can pray, God, you need to touch that person across the aisle from me because, whoo, they need a real awakening. I mean, they need a real come to Jesus. I mean, maybe God is saying, you need to get your heart right. You're the one 
I'm trying to change. You're the one I'm trying to bring revival to and, and radically transform. You want him to fix the problem? He wants to fix you. Like Jesus, don't hesitate. Not my will. We must say, but yours be done. God, I want your plan to be accomplished. Surrender to his plan. Can you think of another garden in the Bible, in the pages of Scripture? Think of Adam and Eve in the garden and the, the first Adam as they asserted their will over God's plan and how it led to sin being passed down to every single man. God, we know it's not your plan for us to eat of this fruit, but God, that's what I really want. How many times do we ask God to bless our plans and never once consider, what does God want? Am I going to surrender to His perfect plan for my life? And folks, it, it changed the course of human history. Here Jesus is the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the second Adam. He, the second Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane surrendered to the will of God. And it led to redemption for all of mankind. We face the same choice every day, either my will or God's. What if we change, what if we charge into your challenge claiming God's peace? Go into that battlefield and that place of, of great trial and we trust God and say, God, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to claim your peace. I'm going to claim your grace. I'm going to claim your protection, your strength, your help in my battle, in this battle Life is a series of battles. Folks, if you know the Lord, you have a distinctive edge. Amen? We're not in this battle alone. One with God is a majority. It doesn't matter how big the enemy is. But if you know the Lord, you've, you've got that distinctive edge. In 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat found himself facing a much larger opposing army. He did what Jesus did in the garden. He fell on his face before the Lord and 2 Chronicles 20, 12 says, Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But what's that last phrase say, church? Our eyes are on who? Our eyes are on you, Lord. We are focused on you and, for, and worshiping you and following you. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way, outnumbered. I don't know. I don't have a clue what to do. Notice what he prayed. He says, we don't know what to do, but Lord, our eyes are on you. That is powerful. Our eyes, God, they're on you. I don't even understand what the next step is going to look like, but God, I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow your plan. He says, don't be afraid. God's got a perfect plan Isaiah 26, 3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. I wonder if that's where you're at this morning. You see, Gethsemane was the world's greatest battle. That's where it was fought. This is the application. What was the real battle that night? It was whether or not to drink the cup. Would he drink the cup or would he toss it away? Would he accept God's plan, God's purpose, God's plan for the ages? See, the Father wasn't forcing Jesus to do it. On that night, Jesus told Peter in Matthew 26, 
Don't you realize I could call on my father? He would instantly put at my disposal 12 legions of angels. He could have easily gotten out of there. He could have easily been taken away. A Roman legion with 6,000 soldiers. We're talking 72,000 angels. In the Bible, angels aren't little babies with wings. Often appear, uh, we, we see pictures and it's like little cherubs. and That's not what he's talking about. Not at all. By the way, when, you, when a person dies, they don't become an angel either. Hate to break that news to you. Sounds good, it's just not biblical. All right, so we'll, we'll leave that for another Sunday. But based on biblical truth, how much damage could those angels have done that night? 2 Kings 19.35, one royal, warrior angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. You do the math. 12 legions of angels could wipe out 13.2 billion people, nearly twice the population of planet Earth. Jesus stood up. He walked out of the garden, carried his cross down that road to Golgotha, took off your sin and mine. It's put in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, as the song sings, he walked right out of that grave. He did that for you. He did that because he loves you. And folks, thank God Jesus won that battle of Gethsemane. Because he submitted to his father's plan. He submitted to his father's will so that we could experience freedom from the bondage of sin, peace in the midst of our storm, forgiveness from all of our past, all of our failures. I wonder this morning, what is your personal Gethsemane? What crushing experience are you currently facing? Maybe it's a health crisis, it's a job, it's a, a bad marriage. Maybe it's putting pressure on you like an olive press. Drawing every bit of life out of your body. Can I just encourage you this morning? Whatever forms that Gethsemane, you can find peace in the midst of this one right now. He's on the throne. He hadn't abandoned you. God has not forsaken us. And he won't. <laughs> we think about that too. He won't. He can't fail. He wins in the end, folks. And folks, there's a bottomless pit prepared for Satan. And whew, we, he, he can't bother us. One day that, that he's going to be chained and bound and cast into the lake of fire. Folks, Jesus won the battle in Gethsemane. And folks, he won the battle for our sins when he rose again from the grave. Do you know him personally? 
Do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with the plans for your future? Do you trust him no matter what? And folks, are you following, surrendering to his plan? Say, God, I might not understand what tomorrow looks like, but I know you hold tomorrow in the palm of your hand. God, I'm going to trust you even when I can't see it. Even when I can't see, don't know where to go, I'm going to trust you entirely. God, God has a perfect plan. And folks, if we'll trust him this morning, he will lead us every single step of the way. You can count on him. He's not going to abandon you. You see, you have no idea what I've gone through. No, I don't. But I can promise you Jesus does. And he'll make beauty out of ashes. He'll take and use something that the devil meant for evil, and he'll use it for good and for his glory. If you'll trust him, he will rewrite whatever the past is, folks. He'll use it for good. Holy Spirit, would you work at our hearts this morning?